Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. You know, there are people that are going to tell you that it's just a few bad apples. If you look at the video, you can't say this whole group, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with white people. It's just a few bad apples. What do you say to that? Uh, to that, I say that if, if, if that's your actual belief, then you're living with your head in the sand. Um, I used to live in New York City and would uh, occasionally go to Hoboken, New Jersey, St. Patrick's Day Parade. Um, and there were so many young white men there vomiting in the streets, urinating in the streets, getting in fistfights in the streets. Um, it, was, it was a I've sight to be seen. I've seen, it it was... my, I've seen it myself. Hey, all. Welcome to Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and on today's episode, we're jumping straight on into the deep dive conversation with a mover and shaker in the industry. This time around, we've got former Gawker editor turned TV writer, Cord Jefferson, who has recently written for The Duly Departed, The Nightly Show, and season two of Master of None. But first, I want to give you all a heads up that on next week's episode, we're going to be discussing the very controversial award season contender. Yes, that's right. Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation. Now, if you've paid any attention to the news swirling around the film over the past couple of months, you know that there's a divide amongst potential audiences. There are those who say that despite Parker's murky past and unsatisfying response to it in the present day, the story of Nat Turner deserves to be seen in this way. And there are others, like writer Roxane Gay, who have publicly declared that they cannot bring themselves to watch the film in light of what we've learned about its creator. So I'd like to hear from you. Are you planning to see The Birth of a Nation in theaters? If so, why? Or if not, why not? No judgment here. Just leave us a voice memo at slaterepresent at gmail.com or leave us a message at 646-580-1748. We'll also put that info in the show notes. Your thoughts might get shared on next week's episode. And we definitely want to hear from you. So give us a shout. And now on to my interview with Cord, who recently joined me in the studio. 
One of the things we talked about during our conversation was how his transition from journalism to writing comedy for the screen isn't quite as huge of a leap as it might initially seem. You know, I would look into the biographies of James Baldwin, who's one of a hero of mine, and Joan Didion, who's a hero of mine, and sort of look at what these people did with their lives. And I would realize that, you know, what it meant to be a writer to them was very broad. They'd go write a, a piece of journalism, and then they'd go write a novel, and then they'd go write a screenplay, and then they'd, like, you know, James Baldwin would follow Martin Luther King around the road and, like, write about his travels with MLK, right? So what it meant to be a writer for them was huge. It, was, there was, it, it encompassed everything. In that spirit, Cord started off writing personal essays and eventually found his way to Gawker. The rest of our conversation led to a very candid discussion about his time there at Gawker and also what it was like working with Larry Wilmore and, later, his love for the 90s sitcom Rock. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cord. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to ask you, like, what do you, what are your thoughts, just briefly, on, like, the demise of Gawker? On Gawker? <laughs> um, it makes me very, very sad. I think that yeah. it was, it was a special place. You know, I, I, I think that... You know, when I was when I was a kid, uh, you know, when you're when you're thinking of like fun kid games, like Pirate always seemed like a fun one to me. You know, and and I think that Gawker was probably the closest I'll ever come to working on a pirate ship. You know, that that came back to bite it in the ass a lot of the time. But at the at the end of the day, I also believe that Gawker was an important outlet and was doing important work. And so that was working there was was a tightrope walk every day. You know, coming in and and you'd have these really high highs where you're like you'd you'd break a story like um, Rob Ford, you know, or Manti Teo, and be like, oh my God, this is we're doing incredible work here, work that other other news outlets are too scared to do, you know. And it felt really good, but then some days you'd come in and you'd be like, oh, I don't I don't like what I did here. I don't I, I think I think that one one of the clearest ones of those for me was one time there as a. Um, it was a Miss Teen Rhode Island, I believe. Uh, we got a tip that a, that a Miss Teen Rhode Island, a teenage beauty contestant, was um, in a porno. That we got a tip that she did porno, and, and so that it, and if she was in porno, then that would disqualify her from being a beauty pageant contestant. And it normally didn't fall to me that kind of like quick tip and, and blog, but for for whatever reason that day everybody was busy, and so the editor in chief asked me if I would if I'd be willing to write that piece, and so. I did. I, that was, uh, you know, it was assigned to me. And so I wrote this piece. I, I went and checked to see if it was uh, this woman. And it was, it was in fact, her. And, and I, um, I wrote up the piece. And it was, like, you know, instantly big. And she instantly lost her, lost her title. Um, and it, I just – I remember leaving work that day feeling bad. It just felt like punching down. It didn't feel like – didn't feel important. It didn't feel like we had improved the world at all. It was true. It was certainly true. What ha- this this was a, a young girl who was in a porno movie who was also a beauty contestant, but I don't know. I didn't feel like I had actually co- contributed to the world in that way at all. I felt like I hurt a person. Right. Did you have any hesitations when it was assigned to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I said, I, I, uh, I, uh, and I, and I was sort of, I had hesitations that I, that I sort of didn't, um, I had hesitations that I didn't um, fight for probably as as uh, strongly as I could have. Uh, I did I did try a couple things to. I mean, for instance, one of my kind of feeble attempts at, at making things better was that I I initially tried to like not link to the movie. Um, I tried to sort of just say like you know I'm I'm not gonna find I'm not gonna help people like find this uh, movie. But you know, 
they asked me to put it in. My bosses asked me to put put it actually put in the link because you know their side of it was that this is true, the, and the link to the video is more evidence that this is true. And and you know like not linking to it doesn't doesn't really mitigate the damage. It just sort of makes it less. It provides less evidence for the for the fact that this is true, you know. And I was like, well, I know it's true. I called the beauty queen organization that runs the things, and I got confirmation that that's her. Um, but you know, they asked me to put the link in, so th- that kind of thing. It was I did put up some protestation, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really strong. It yeah. wasn't rigorous, and I think that. Um, so that was an instance where, like, I still think about that one. I still think about that as as, um, as something that I. Uh, I regret doing and that I regret being a part of. I mean, it's also just you think about the 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 famous women who in recent years have had like granted it's porn. It's not quite the same, but like sexting text messages and that sort of thing. And, and whether it's right for a journalist who's reporting on this to actually link to those things. I mean, I have to say that's like a, I feel like that's a line you shouldn't you shouldn't cross and. I think that is obviously that same sort of idea is sort of what brought Gawker down with the whole uh, Hulk Hogan thing. Yeah, I think know. that that's the, the well the the sort of what what that story that I just told points to and what the the what ultimately was Gawker's downfall, right, is the gray area of newsworthiness and the gray area of which direction you're punching. So are you punching up or are you punching down? And when Gawker first started out as this, like, you know, small little red media blog, it was always punching up, you know, because everybody was bigger than it. So uh, you could go after a lot of people as furiously as you wanted to because everybody was bigger than you and you had you were, you were powerless. Mm-hmm. But as Gawker started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and started getting name checked in the New York Times and on CNN and, and was sort of like really started to run with the big boys, um, assessing – what was punching up and what was punching down was was more difficult. Right. Um, and so that day that I wrote about that beauty queen, I felt like I wasn't using the tool for good. I was using the tool for, I won't say evil, but I was using the tool to kind of dismantle somebody who wasn't deserving of that. That said, those days were few and far between. You know, um, I, f- I felt proud and excited to work at Gawker far more often than I ever felt. Um, bad about working at Gawker. Um, to this day, I think it was the, not think, it was definitely the best job in journalism I've ever had. So from Gawker, your your story is sort of interesting in that you, as as I understand it, you just sort of got a phone call to be like, hey, yeah. are you interested in writing for yeah. TV? Like how, did, was this someone you knew or a friend of a friend? Was that, no, that this sort was, of thing? No, this was, so this is a, so this is a, um, I did this thing at Gawker actually. I wrote this short satirical piece about um it was like the the culture of white violence mm-hmm. there was a uh there was a i think in 2013 there was a riot at in Huntington Beach at a surf competition so it was all these white kids at a surf competition who proceeded to destroy Huntington Beach and like get in fights in the street and they were drunk and they were bashing open building windows and stealing stuff and it was and tipping over porta potties and you know just what happens at a riot and so I wrote this quick satirical piece about, you know, this culture of white violence has got to stop, essentially turning on its head that what everything that people say about, you know, black kids, if, if black kids are ever involved in kind of... I remember that yeah. piece. I really liked that. Thank one. you. Yeah. And so um, I wrote that. And then the next day, Chris Hayes reached out to me and asked me if I would do a satirical 
um, just basically do the article but perform it on his show and we'd do a segment basically sort of bashing the white community for um, letting the white youth run amok. And so, you know, the same thing that you'd see on Bill O'Reilly if, if there's ever like a black riot, right? Right. <clears throat> And so we went on and I talked about the culture of white violence and, and how this, is, this has to stop and like white parents have lost control of their kids and all this, all this stuff. And it, uh, it like instantly blew up like in a way that I wasn't expecting at all. And so uh, about three weeks after that, um, a guy reached out to me, a guy named Jermaine Johnson, uh, who's with this company called Three Arts and asked me if I'd ever consider writing for television. He th- said he'd think I'd be he he thought I would be good at it. So I went and met him for coffee in LA and we kicked around some ideas and he he said he saw that that piece and that he liked he, and then he went and read the piece and then read some other stuff that I'd written and said that he thinks that I should write a, a script. So we kicked around ideas for a spec script. But it wasn't a comedy, actually. I, I started writing a, uh, a drama spec script, a one hour, which I think that he was disappointed by. Cause I, <laughs> I think that he wanted, I think that he maybe expected a comedy script. But oh, okay. we, um, I was like, no, this, uh, I want to write a drama first. So I wrote a drama. What was the drama about? It was called, the drama was called Forgive Me Father. Um, loosely, there's a, there's a working title, we'll say. Uh, and it's, I always felt like um, my father's a Vietnam veteran and uh, veteran stories have always been very interesting to me. And I felt, I still feel that we, um, society uh, in general, but Hollywood in particular does does a disservice to veterans by not telling the stories enough, which I find, I find them, um, you know, as important as war is in people's lives and as, and as often as America is at war. We talk about it surprisingly little in in popular culture, yeah. and, and uh, we especially talk about what happens to people when they come back from war, and uh, and how people live their lives post that. Um, well, there, I could think of quite a few examples off the top of my head, although all of them are centered around white guys. And your dad is is yeah, black, my, right? yeah, my dad's black, and yeah. I just felt like. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I just feel like I just think of like Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. Oh yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But those, I'm talking. I guess those. Yeah. Mm. I think that um, as far as Vietnam movies go, absolutely. But I, I'm talking about like our current. True. Oh, okay. I'm talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. Very okay. Yes. Absolutely. There was a, there was an definitely. entire crop of Vietnam movies and Deer Hunter and all that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of great stuff. Um, but I, I'm talking about like our current wars. You know, my. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know. My the majority of my adult life, America has been at war, you know, and we don't. There's very little popular culture to reflect that. Yeah. And seeing that, um, you know, seeing how, you know, it. it my dad was, I, I won't say luckier, but maybe it is luck. But my dad was luckier than a lot of people. You know, my father wasn't homeless. My father, you know, wasn't suicidal ever. But I did see the way that it impacted his life and affected his life forever. You know, and he's still to this day he's affected by that, and he'll he'll say openly that he was affected by by war in a deep way um, and it changed him forever and mm-hmm. he said he once told me that the, the thing that, heart, that breaks his heart about his life the most is that, he'll, that I will never know the man he was before he went to war he said I'll only know the man that came back from war and that is and he said that that is uh, the most heartbreaking thing that he's ever known yeah. um, so I think that we anyway fast forward to modern America we don't really give those stories to veterans so yeah. I was interested in writing a veteran story but not writing, you know, the same veteran story that this like vet comes back with PTSD and he's an alcoholic. Um, 
so I wanted to write, so I wrote a veteran story that was not a veteran. He was a, a military clergy, um, a, a Catholic priest who went over and um, spent three years in Iraq and Afghanistan and saw some really heavy things and was dealing with the fact that he, um, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill, but he spent three years convincing people to go out and like kill people and die every day for maybe a war that he didn't necessarily believe in. So it's not just a, it's not a soldier, it's a, it's a military clergy who comes back sort of like haunted by a lot of things that happened over there and kind of follows his crisis of faith post-war. I, thank you. I thought it was, you know, it was it was the, for the first ever script that I wrote. I, lo- I look back at it, and there are, there are some things that I really hate, and some some things that make me cringe. But for the most part, the structure of it I liked, and I sort of I felt like there was something there, you know. But I didn't do it in earnest. I kind of w- was very lackadaisical about it. So mm. we, like I said, we met in July 2013. I sent him a draft. I sent my manager a draft in January 2014, and a week later. Out of the blue, uh, a guy named Mike O'Malley wrote to me and said, hey, I'm starting a writer's room next week. Would you be interested in joining? I've read some of your stuff, and I think you'd be good at it. So I called uh, Jermaine, my manager, who wasn't my manager at the time, and I was like, hey, man, I know we don't have a business relationship, but I just got offered a job to write for television. Um, Would you be willing to give me some advice about that? What do you think that I should do? And he was like... this never happens. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Nobody just cold calls you yeah, and that's asks you to come write so, for TV. Yeah. He was like, people work for years and years and years to do that, and they still don't get that job. So he was like, take the job, and we'll figure out what to do um, What to do afterward. Your hardest job, the first job is the hardest to get, and everything after that kind of comes easier. easier. And this was for Survivor's Remorse. For Survivor's Remorse on Stars. Mm-hmm. So I called... Um, I called my boss, John Cook at Gawker, and I said, hey, I know that I hate to do this last minute, but it was like they offered me the job on Saturday for Monday. The Monday was the start. So they sent they sent me the official offer on Saturday, and they wanted me to start Monday. So I called John Cook on Sunday, and I said, hey, man, I know I feel awful doing this, but I'm, I'm, I want to take this job writing for TV. Um, and he was very gracious about it. He knew that I, I wouldn't have been leaving if it hadn't have been for something so vastly different. And um, how, how was it different? Because obviously writing for a, you know, a magazine or a newspaper is very different from writing. It's a collaborative experience when you're in a writer's yeah, room. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, yeah, I would say it's not, it's not entirely different. I think that if you are able to tell a story um, I believe that storytelling is storytelling is storytelling. If you're able to sit around a campfire and tell an interesting story and keep people interested, then you could probably um, be a decent journalist. Mm-hmm. And then if you can sort of write a journalism, uh, write, write a piece of journalism and keep people interested from point A to point B, then you could write a movie also. And if you could write a movie, you write TV. And you know, I, I just feel like some people are 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 should be storytellers. And if you can tell a story one way, you can probably tell a story another way. Mm. Um, There's just different ways to go about telling that story. So um, it wasn't vastly different. It was, uh, but it was different. And you're right, it was far more collaborative. Um, You know, we we sat around a room. I think there was eight of us on that show. 
What um, was the breakdown? Because Survivor's Remorse, if for the listeners who might not have heard of it or have, haven't seen it, it's a show with the predominantly black cast. Yeah, it's produced by LeBron James. LeBron James. And Tishina Arnold is one of the stars. It centers around an athlete. And so that's like a show with a predominantly black cast. And what was the breakdown like in the writers? There was room? actually a lot of black writers, um, majority black writers. Um, the creator, though, is, is Creator's white. white. Mike O'Malley's white. His co-EP um, was a guy named Victor Levin. He was he was uh, a white man. Mm-hmm. Um, Sasha Penn was white, but then uh, the uh, rest of us, four more of us, and we were all black. One black woman also. Um, so gender not gender breakdown isn't great, but uh, race breakdown is far better than you're going to see in most um, Hollywood writers' rooms. Yeah. Um, and Mike was very purposeful about that, and it was that was one of the things that attracted me to him was that you know he said I'm if, I'm not going to be a white guy. Who writes a show about all black people with a with a room full of white guys? Oh, um, thank so, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was, very, and he was very purposeful about that, and he reached out. And you know, I I I feel incredibly grateful to have met him and to have worked with him. And he literally, you know, he literally changed the course of my life. There's not a lot of people you can say that about, and he literally did that. He he said, "Hey, would would you want to try this new thing?" And how how long were you on the show for? The first it was season? incredibly short, 13 weeks. Okay. It, was a th- it was a 13 week. So, yeah. because the first season order was six episodes, half hour episodes. And so we were in and out of there. It was 13 weeks, which was one of the reasons that was initially one of the, that was one of the things that I initially was freaked out about when I called Jermaine uh, and made that first call and told him I got th- this job opportunity is because he, um, I said, you know, I liked what I was doing. I was a gawker and I liked what I was doing. I was good at it. Um, and so to, to take that leap for a 13-week job with no guarantee beyond that was actually pretty terrifying. Yeah, it's one scary. thing if you know, if it's one thing you know, if I were an accountant and I hated my job and I felt like I was going to die every day just because I was so miserable, um, then it's like okay, no brainer, I'll take this leap. But I enjoyed what I was doing, and I, there was no guarantee that I could come back and do it if if I did this thing and it crashed and burned. Yeah. So, um, but I did it anyway, and it was 13 weeks, and then. Was probably the worst, the worst summer of my life. Following those thirteen weeks, just because there was no, I couldn't get a job anywhere. Um, it was, uh, I call it the, I did the uh, couch and water bottle tour, where I, where I was going to, was going to every studio in L.A. I was going to ABC, NBC, HBO, CBS. I was just like every every production company and every studio in L.A. I went to basically, and met with people. Um, and chatted, and by by that time, I had also written a comedy script, um, which was helpful. Jermaine said that after I'd written the drama, I should write a comedy also, because mm. there's a lot. It might be easier to get into, into comedy rooms than it would be to get into drama rooms right off the bat. So for a black person, yeah, yeah, I've, I've from the people I've spoken with, that tends to be a lot easier to get into those rooms. Absolutely, especially if it's my second job. You yeah, know? No, no, nobody's really going to sort of. I don't think take the risk to hire me after, especially after my first job was a comedy show, you know? So I wrote a comedy script and I just went and met a lot of people and it was, it was humbling. It was great though. You know, I I was dancing for my dinner again and just going out and meeting new people and explaining who I was and explaining what I was interested in. A lot of the stuff that I didn't have to do, you know, I was, I wasn't like a super famous celebrity journalist or anything. I'm not Malcolm Gladwell, but I was, you know, People were writing to me and asking me if I would do freelance stuff. It wasn't instead of me going out and sending out pitch letters and stuff. So yeah. having to start at square one and explain to everybody who I was and, and what I was interested in and the work that I've done in the past was 
um, I think good. It was, it, it sort of forced me to reevaluate what I was doing and forced me to reassess what I was actually interested in and, and, uh, think about what I wanted to do with my career in television in a good way. Um, but it, it, it eventually, it started to wear on me after about, I, like I said, I spent all summer, um, basically eating into my savings slowly. Um, and then my apartment building got sold. I'll never forget that my, they sold my apartment building to, uh, just one of the the worst landlords I've ever met in my life. Just an awful man who was slowly trying to erode everybody's, um, just kind of trying to erode everybody's uh, willingness to tolerate him, so uh, that eventually yeah. everybody would leave and just he could finally just jack up the rates mm-hmm. on all the apartments. Um, so that was happening, and I was just. One day I was leaving my apartment and I was miserable and I had been to meetings all week and I was tired and there was no job in sight. And I went to to look at this new apartment down the street from me. It was sort of in my price range and I was uh, in the neighborhood that I wanted to live in and I was so excited to get there and I got there. And I was like sweating because I had raced over there. And I walked into the apartment and so excited and ready to fill out this paperwork. And there was like 25 people already there. Oh. I was like, oh. Yeah. That's... I'm never going to get this apartment. Yeah. Whoever's going to get this apartment is already here. They've probably been here already for an hour. And so I left just in agony. I was miserable. I was on the verge of tears. And I I went home and I sort of banged out this long email to um, Jermaine, who by that time was my manager. And I was like, hey, man. I just need you to be honest with me. Maybe this was a pipe dream. It was a fun pipe dream if it was. I've had a good time. I don't regret it at all. But I need you to be honest with me and tell me if, you know, this has come to an end and that I'm not going to get a job in television again. Because if that's the case, then I need to go back and, like, figure out what I'm going to do and, like, get a new job. Because by that time, I'd already I'd also been offered, like, three other journalism jobs that I've turned down to continue um, pursuing TV. So I said, you know, I just feel like... If I keep doing this and I'm I'm going to, A, eat up all my savings, but B, not going to be able to get a job in journalism because I'll have been gone for so long. And then so it'll be right. it'll be something that just isn't there anymore. And so he wrote me back the next day and was like, listen, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I promise you this is just sort of the way things are right now just because nobody really knows you and we're getting your name out there. I promise you we're incredibly close to something. I'm sure of it. Uh, lo and behold uh, – I got an interview with a guy named Rory Albanese who was going to – he was flying out the next day. I was the first interview that he took. He was flying out the next day to start hiring writers for a show called The Nightly Show. With Larry Wilmore. With with Larry Wilmore. And so I met him and uh, I was the first writer he met and he said – I didn't know this at the time but he called Larry, he said, after he met me. And he said, I think we found our first writer but I want you to meet him. And so um, three days later I went and met Larry on the set of Blackish. And hung out with uh, hung out with him there, and had lunch with him, and then went and hung out on the set for a little bit, and watched him direct an episode. And then I found out three weeks later that I got the job. And so I moved to New York in December 2014. Yeah. Um, and and you helped launch the show. Essentially. Yeah, we st- our first day was December 3rd, um, about seven weeks before we actually launched the show. So we started writing test episodes and writing. Um, sketches and stuff uh seven weeks before we started which was not a lot of time for a di- for a di- now that i now that i've worked on a on a daily tv show seven weeks of preparation is not a lot of time yeah there's um, so much work that goes into it there's and... so much work that goes into it it's insane yeah it's insane and so um but it was also but that was uh, nightly show was an incredible experience for me because 
having having worked for only 13 weeks on a TV show, it was really sort of uh, um, baptism by fire. You know, I was forced to write every day. I was forced to create every day. I was forced to pitch every day. You know, there's no time to sit around feeling sorry for yourself or like wondering whether or not you can write this or whether or not you're a good writer. Um, and I feel like I became a much, much better television writer during that time just because I was forced to do write every day and forced to write TV every day. Did you, did you guys feel any outside pressure or put any pressure on yourselves as being like, this is a big deal because it was Larry Wilmore. It was a black person with a late night show. And um, I actually had Larry on the show a, yeah, few, I saw that. a few weeks ago. I and saw that. He was great. But it does seem like there is so much pressure. And I'm wondering if that like translated at all into the writers or in like, if that's any ever anything yeah. you ever discussed? Well, not. I I think that it was it was nothing that we ever it was nothing that we ever discussed. But you know the 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 pressure was there. I don't th- I don't know if it was necessarily because Larry's black. I think that 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 is an unspoken thing that certainly it was in the back of my mind. I will say at least I don't mm-hmm. know if it was in the back of everybody's mind. I, I certainly don't think know if it was in the back of Larry's mind because he seemed very sort of like calm and collected the entire uh, process. But the thing that was scary to me was uh, the shoes we were filling, you know, and the shoes that Stephen, uh, Colbert's, Stephen shoes. Colbert's shoes and the shoes that came before us, which were John Stewart's shoes. So mm-hmm. um, coming onto that network in this beloved time slot where these sort of like icons, American, truly American comedic icons existed for years and years and years, that was that was scary for me. We were taking over for this guy that everybody loved and <clears throat> we were going to try to do something totally different. It's pressure to perform no matter what, but you know there was those things. There was like Larry's the Larry's black. You know, um, he has a staff of you know the head the the, the head writer's a black woman. You know, there's other there's you know there's a lot of black people in the staff. You know, the 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 diversity of the staff um, was not representative of, of what you're going to see in other writers' rooms, especially the late night writers' rooms. You know, we were trying something different in many ways, and so I think that uh, there is that. There is that unspoken tension that comes from um, and that unspoken kind of pressure that comes from trying something new and try something vastly different. Yeah. And I want to jump back a little bit to your piece for Medium about writing, about race and getting sort of stuck in that rut and 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 tr- getting tired of having to prove your hum- humanity and prove the humanity of black people. And I'm not sure how long you were on the show. When did you leave the I show? I left April. Okay, so you were around... for about 17 months. Right, so you were around for, you know, the Charleston shootings, Mm -hmm. Sandra Bland. How did that translate into... Like, you have that feeling when you're writing about it every day as a journalist, but, like, within the writer's room, sort of, how did that translate, and did that wear on you in a similar way as it did when you were on the journalism beat? It was... it, it, It didn't wear on me in a similar way because... Because I feel like there was so many more tools at my disposal and so many different ways that we could talk about these things. TV is such a dynamic medium. You know, I remember for the for the God, what was it? I believe it was for I believe it was for Ferguson when the Justice Department report came out on the Ferguson police and yeah. just you know how they were constantly basically using the black community as as uh, as a way to fund their coffers mm-hmm. and were just stopping people constantly and harassing black people constantly to uh, to to help fund the the police department. You know. Th- that was a, a grim. It was a grim um, piece of work. You know, reading that it, it was heartbreaking, and you saw how it devastated people's lives. But you know, I remember that that night that that came out, we sort of did a breakdown of what the report said, and then 
I'll never forget this. We we put a uh, fake tail lights on Larry's desk, and in the middle of him talking about what was happening in Ferguson, we sent out uh, a writer at the time to to play uh, to play this cop. You can't just stop me in the middle of my show and start giving me fines for stuff. Yes, I can. I definitely can, especially if you have a broken tail light. Well, my desk doesn't have tail lights, so I don't. <laughs> Tell that to the broken taillight on your desk. Hey, you know, we were hey, saying hey, something. Hey, it was satirical. Hey, it was okay. funny. It was smart. And we were talking about that report in a way that I would have never been able to talk talk about that report if I were writing about it for Gawker. You know, we were able to, um, you know, take this this incredibly sad thing. And, you know, there's only so much outrage I could muster. I think the, what I was writing about in that in that medium piece, you know, is A, the, the psychological toll it takes on you, but also, you know, what what else can I say? Like you know, I should say like this. This is awful. Here's here's what happened in this in this police in this report of what the police are doing, and this is awful. We should be disgusted by this if we're if we're at all disgusted by by um, the degradation of the black community. Everybody should be disgusted by this. Um, and I didn't know how many more ways I could say that. I felt like I said it over and over and over again. I felt like I was saying it constantly. Gets so tired. Yeah, it's exactly. Because what can you say? You know, mm-hmm. but. You say like when you when you go to when you go to a workplace like that and you and, and you can say okay let's put taillights on Larry's desk let's 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 bring out a cop and like have him smash the taillight let's have him like write all these ridiculous tickets for Larry been that that comparable to the ridiculous tickets they're writing for to black people in Ferguson all these all these dynamic ways that you can make your point in a way that you couldn't do it if you were just writing for a newspaper writing for a magazine or writing for a website you know yeah. I'd like to shift over because you are now working on Master of None, correct? I was, yeah. You were. We finished writing that season. Oh, awesome. The show was very critically praised and, and people loved it. But there were some like criticisms like with all shows. Granted, this is this has to do more with casting than it does with actually writing. But like there were criticisms that Aziz Ansari's character, all of his girlfriends or most of them were white. And there, there were thoughts about why that is and why interracial relationships always have to be with a white person one of the people is a white person and i'm curious as as to whether you ever discussed those things addressing them in the second season whether that was that was anything that ever even came up or if it was just purely like a we need to build on these characters and that sort of motivation within the writer's room i i have i there is a there's a very tight leash on what i can say about season two um i will say that what, what i what i can say um, Aziz is a very thoughtful guy. Yeah, he is a very smart guy. From what I saw working with him uh, f- over the course of several months, is that he um, certainly thinks about these issues deeply, mm-hmm. um, and he thinks about these criticisms deeply. And I will say that um, I, I would suggest that people tune into season two. Cool. That's a very <laughs> diplomatic answer. I oh, I'm definitely going to tune in. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm slightly fangirling out because I love that show so much. Um, I also Good. loved his speech that he that well technically he didn't do the speech. Alan Yang did Alan his did, his, yeah. his co-creator, yeah. but that I thought that was just a great point. That yeah, he made. they're both very thoughtful guys. They're both uh, I think that um, a real testament to uh, a real testament to what television can be and what you can do. People saying you know you can't. Nobody's going to tune in and people aren't really going to like television if it's not white characters and this stuff won't sell. It's like it's bullshit, you know. That is a show that um, it has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, you know. It's, it's incredibly hard to do and it's kind of universally acclaimed. Uh, and I think that 
those guys have proven that it doesn't, you don't need to have straight white men and straight white women falling in love in order to get people to watch comedies. You know, I think that you can have, you can have people doing different things and talking about different things and talking about these sort of serious issues to them and these deeply personal issues. And you can, you can have intimate portrayals of people who aren't white people and people are going to like it. You know, it's those, those are universal themes. And is that, is the, I mean, I know you've only been in a couple of writers rooms, but I think we all know that the, the breakdown is also often still very heavily white, but it's like, it seems like that show would have like a way more, Diverse. There was only one white man in that writer's room. Huh, Everybody else was either women or uh, women of color mm-hmm. or uh, men of color. Cool. There was only one one white male. I love that. The entire time. <laughs> <laughs> it it's was, great. Yeah, and that's I've been I've been lucky enough to uh, be in rooms and see sort of I've never let me I'm trying to think every writer well. This is crazy to say. I mean, every I've only been in three writers' rooms, but all three have been significantly. Um, uh, they've they've sort of had a significant presence of of people of color and women. Yeah, it's been a it's been a thing that that has been. Um, I think that you know. I think that the the criticisms are helping. I think that people are understanding. You know, even if we want to look at it in the most cynical way possible, which is that uh, it's good for business. You know, I think people are finally starting to understand that. You know mm-hmm. that that. Uh, having uh, storylines that, that black people want to watch and that South Asian people want to watch and that Asian people want to watch. You know, the, the having those kinds of storylines and those kinds of representation are going to be good for business because people are hungry for that. You know, a lot of Americans are hungry for that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are looking at television, looking at movies and seeing that they're being left out in the cold as far as having their stories told. You recently wrote for The New York Times a really loving recommendation uh, for the TV sitcom Rock. Yeah. And... I'm going to out myself here and say that I, I vaguely remember watching it as a kid. Yeah. But I think I was too, like, I caught it in reruns and it wasn't rerun very often. No, it's not rerun at all anymore. Yeah. A, a friend made fun of me because I wrote a letter of recommendation about something you can't find. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, I think you can find, like, bootleg videos on YouTube, but that's, like, yeah. the extent of it. Yeah. And that show stars Charles S. Dutton. And you talk about in the piece about, you make comparisons to The Cosby Show and how rock was way more like the characters were embedded with more real realism like they it didn't limit its uh sort of realism quote unquote to very special episodes it was just kind of baked into their dna like the the lead female character she it's revealed at some point that she was sexually assaulted yeah at the end it, of the first season right so it was very real and i guess my question which is not it doesn't really have anything to do with that aspect of it. But I'm curious if you could choose to have written on any 90s TV sitcom, which would it have been? Any 90s TV sitcom? Um, well, black or, or about black, black people. Black, yeah. About black people? Yeah. I would say that um, if I'm – so the the cynical part of me will say uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I love Because that I love that show a lot. Um but that show is also a rerun all the time, and I would be getting residuals <laughs> to this day, and I would have a lot, a lot of money. Yes. Um, so, but I also will say that that show uh, tempered its commercial appeal with like very serious, good issues. You know, I, I mean, we watched. Do, I mean, do you remember the the episode where his dad leaves? I need him then, and I don't need him now. Will. Will. Now you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm gonna get through college without him. 
I'm gonna get a great job without him. I'm gonna marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm gonna be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? That, yeah. that that was the moment. It's devastating. That might be Will Smith's best performance. Yeah. Hands down. But, I, like I said, my, if I'm not being a cynic, if I'm, like, really going to go for it, I would say Rock. But Rock was on three seasons. And I'd probably be, look, I'd be looking for a new job. I'd still be I'd still be living <laughs> large if I wrote on, <laughs> on Freshman's in Bel-Air. <laughs> yes, you would. I mean, look at Andy Barowitz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I believe Larry Wilmore wrote on um, Fresh Prince also. I think he did. He did lots of those 90s sitcoms. Yeah. 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 So my final question to you, which I ask all of my guests, yeah. is when is the last time you watched something that you were not directly involved in, it was not written or created by you, that you felt represented by? Like you could see yourself in the show or in that character or... <sighs> This is difficult. Um, 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 What do I feel represented by? I got it. Mm-hmm. I got it. Um, so did you watch the? Did you watch the? Um, the OJ documentary. Uh, yes. Made in America. Yes. So I'm obsessed with that. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. It's my, you one of be. my. Yeah, one of my. Uh, the guy, the guy who made it is this guy named Ezra Edelman. You should have him on. He's he's one of my friends. He's a great dude. Oh. Super smart. Can you, can you hook us up? Yeah, probably. I'll try. Yeah. All right. But so, OJ made in America. You just realize like, OJ is like a damaged person in a, in a very in a very real way. Um, but the the thing that I I walked away with and the thing that I've talked to my friends about since was that that um, that thing that like I'm not black. I'm OJ. Yeah, this oh, famous, yeah. famous quote. Yeah. Like, as crazy as I think that OJ is and, and, and as, as sort of like dark as I think that, that a place that that comes from, like, I remember thinking like, I understood that. Like, I understand the desire to be seen as unique and not like a part of the, a monolithic black community and being like, no, I'm me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a human being. I'm different. And like, look at me as a human being, like, don't look at me as like this monolithic thing that you, that you look at the black community as like, I, I sort of, I understand that impulse. And I think that that impulse led OJ to do crazy shit. Like say, you know, do, do, do you remember the anecdote where he's like, where they were like, Oh, look at that table of niggers. Like OJ's with the niggers. Oh and yeah. OJ's like, no, it's great. Like I'm not the nigger. I'm OJ, you know, like yeah, yeah. To, to cause him to do like insane stuff like that. And, and just like to sort of like ingratiate himself to white people in such a deep way that, that sort of he, you could tell he was trying to be that kind of weird, um, Chameleon? Chameleon. Yes. That's kind of yeah. like chameleon quality that he was looking for. Yeah. Um, that is insane. But I also understand, like, I just want to be me. Like, I just want to be a human being. I want to be seen as a human being the way that I want to be seen as a u- unique human being the way white people are seen as unique human beings. I totally get that. I totally got that. And that was a thing that was like, damn, like, I, that is something that I, I feeling like for a, a, a moment, like, oh, man, I have something in common with oj like what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with me that i have something in common with oj that's the thing about oj though he's so friggin complex yeah and I, what's great about that documentary is that it gets at all the ways in which he is so friggin complex yeah and it's not it's not just for lack of a better analogy black or white like it, or metaphor or whatever it's 
Yeah, I, I, I can see that too. I understand that quote. And obviously, I, I think you're saying you don't like agree. That's not something you would ever say. Oh, no. <laughs> it's not something I'd ever say. I, but, I'm black. I'm just saying that, like, yeah. that motivation to be like, man, I just want to be a man. Like, exactly. I just want to be a human being. It's like, just, just look at me as a human being. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this was an amazing chat. I really appreciate well, thank you coming you so on the much. Show. No, thank you so much for having me. I hope uh, I answered everything. Yeah, I love talking about your very unusual trajectory towards becoming a TV writer. And That's weird, yeah. Looking forward to whatever you do next. Thank you so much. And I'm excited for Master of None. April 2017. Oh, that seems so long from it now. It is. It is. But it'll be worth it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for today. So great to have Cordon for such a candid conversation, and I cannot wait to see how Master of None goes down in just a few months. You can find links to the things we touched on in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And speaking of iTunes, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who's been listening so far. It's been a great journey to have you all send your messages and your thoughts and your critiques. And we just found out recently that we made it into new and newsworthy under the iTunes heading. And so it's really great to see ourselves up there. And we're just looking forward to bringing more great stuff for you as we continue along. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And the music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. 